This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Let's appreciate how big Mumford and Sons were. How many people were at these biggest gigs? Maybe 60 to 80, but some people even said 100. But I, I, I don't. Thousand. Yeah, and we headlined Glastonbury as well, which was that was that's right. You know, that's the mecca of music, and, and that felt. But we're talking about night. literally millions of fans around the world. Yeah, it was it was um, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal, and again a, a, a miracle. If you remember all the improbably long beards young hipster guys grew and the tweed the kids were rocking, it's likely they were listening to the Mumfords on their AirPods. It's folk music reimagined for a millennial generation, another British invasion of the US. Mumford and Sons made it there and right across the world. Language was no barrier. But Winston Marshall left the band in 2021 for lauding Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy, a book written by the American journalist Andy No. Winston apologized for praising the book, but decided he'd take a break from the band to, quotes, examine his blind spots. A couple of months on, he wrote an essay defending his support for Andy No, discussing the reaction to his apology for the tweet and announced he'd permanently leave Mumford & Sons so that he could exercise free speech about politics without involving his former bandmates. It was a moment of sadness as he fully expected he'd be playing with the guys he grew up with until retirement age. So now Winston is cast as a culture warrior, a description he's in direct conflict with as he likes to create culture, not go to war with it. And he now produces an excellent podcast called Marshall Matters for The Spectator and he's quite the magnet for guests including Jordan Peterson, David Baddiel, Graham Linehan and Candice Owens who came out in defence of anti-Semite of the year Kanye West. Kanye has been on these anti-Semitic tirades tirades online on social media and uh, including saying things like he he was going to go DEFCON 3 on all Jewish people and one rather bizarre conversation with Lex Friedman. He somehow blamed the high rate of black abortions on Jewish record labels or something like that. Yes. So it's not totally coherent, which I think is an important thing to remember. Um, but it incites, and I mean, it, it incited Winston, it incited um, Sieg Heils on yeah, bridges yeah, in there LA. Was a, there was a, there was Kanye a, is right. Yeah, Kanye is right, yeah. Winston's also still rocking the banjo and guitar in a solo career, both in the studio and as a live performer around the world. Heavy discussion is punctuated by Winston's broad, infectious laughter. And in the spirit of an interviewer himself, our dynamic really took on a proper conversation. Given my delightful first couple of hours with Winston, we might just be better off without him. I'm number one in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Really? Yeah. You're number one in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, Amongst for, what? I've okay. been for nine days. Who's listening? Which, which People what in Riyadh and Jeddah. Also to Sa- potential Saudi listeners, hello from London. <laughs> hey, it's Winston Marshall. <laughs> Welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you, Johnny. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming home. In your, in your very beautiful home. I've just met your very... Uh, sweet wife, and, and it's been a very warm welcome. So you're you're really welcome. This is me up. Here we go. Here we go. Who knows what could share. happen next? Um, should we talk about 
what makes you so famous, which is your long and distinguished career with Mumford and Sons. Yeah, 14 years. So um started with the band when I was 19. Before that, playing in various bands all around the pubs of London. I think just around the corner from here at Mornington Crescent, there was the, I remember cycling, I was cycling past this morning um, where it used to be the Purple Turtle, unless it's still there and I was at the wrong place. But um, there's a, it was an old pub that I remember we turned up, they booked us when I was playing in a band called Gobbler's Knob, and, uh, uh, which was a kind of rock and roll band when I was 15, 16. They booked us, we turned up, we were kids, and they are like, well, you're underage, you're not allowed in. And we were like, well, what, you, what on earth are you talking about? You booked us. And we eventually agreed that we could play, but that none of our fans, which was more 14, 15-year-olds, were allowed in. So they were all pissed off of us, and we played to an empty room, but we played none of them. Anyway, uh, age 19, uh, played... Uh, for eventually, of all the bands, uh, settled in a band called Mumford and Sons with three other very talented young men. And um, we were focused on touring. The lead singer started with a handful of songs, but it soon emerged that we were all songwriters and we all contributed. And over the next 14 years, we made four studio albums, several EPs, toured the world several times over. We were very, very, very lucky boys because you know to be in a band it's not just about making great music but you know there are great bands who make great music but the stars don't necessarily align and we were very fortunate in that we loved the music we made and we seemed to capture the imagination of a lot of people so it was it seemed like a little bit of a miracle and uh, we particularly loved touring America we, we we went I think we must have I've been to 46 47 states now and uh, just it was it was kind of a childhood a boy's dream just touring and playing music every night and uh, yeah we loved it it must be and then we think of the British invasion in the 80s after the Beatles into America and then we think of Britpop which didn't quite cross the Atlantic in the same way with Blur and Oasis and those characters from the 1990s but New Folk <laughs> did and uh, you are an architect of that um yeah, yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, there was certainly a folk movement, and I'm not totally sure uh, where. The, I mean, okay, so in London, again, back when I was like 18, 17, 18, 19, there were all these different folk bands, and we were all playing pubs all around London. So from North London, there were bands like uh, the Holloways, who had a fiddle, or, or Beans on Toast, who still performs, who's a folk guy, you know, and playing these kind of three Great chords thing. and the truth. Uh, type um, in 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 the school of I don't know a Billy Bragg or a, a British Woody Guthrie right. type thing. There was certainly a, an attraction to folk instruments, acoustics, uh, sound, traditional um, music, and in, in, in the sense of you know Irish trad, American trad, and um, I, I, why that all happened, I'm not t- entirely sure why we were all into into that, but we were, and and why it then captured the imagination of so many because then it got weird. There was a point where you could see around London, everyone sort of growing beards and wearing tweed and there was a kind of moment. And then in America, there was a similar um, movement of bands like the Lumineers or uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the the Night Sweats and and just uh, uh, going back to these travel, Avid Brothers, um, Old Crow Medicine Show, there was a revival or a, a growing popularity of what at its core was trad music, but with, I guess, a new, you call it new folk, and perhaps what was new about it was that the songwriting 
style was more modern, but yes. using using traditional instruments. Yeah. And it feeds back into popular culture from, like so many upstart culture, which starts grassroots in clubs or in nightclubs or in dance mm. clubs. Um, I was th- I'm thinking of Dance Tonight by Paul McCartney. I don't know that song. It's, um, I'm going to just play it you. Mandolin, yeah. yeah, I'm just thinking he sort of got this a bit from you guys, from what was in the side guys. A couple of years. Everybody gonna feel alright. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. Everybody gonna dance around. Everybody gonna hit the ground. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. Well, you can come on to my place if you want to. You can do anything you want to do. Everybody gonna dance tonight. Everybody gonna feel all right. Everybody gonna dance around tonight. I love the guy. Wow, that's a great song. Yeah, the guy is... 100% brilliant, isn't he? And National what a long trip. career. But that sort of idea, that zeitgeist fed back into him, hmm. who's not afraid to take on so many different new genres. Uh-huh. And I think that might have been in the zeitgeist for him in his yeah, 70s. And then there was, there was, I remember, I think it was Avicii or, or the, the dance electronic EDM guy started using folk instruments yeah. as well. So you would hear folk songs with a dance electro kicks underneath and, and it, it, it certainly spread there was a weird sort of moment I've been trying to uh, perhaps over intellectualizing it but it was just in 2008 was the the financial crash and I and I wonder whether there was a general sort of people fed up with synthetic everything being yes. synthetic and real and there was maybe like what is real and and I, I wonder if they're linked. I do, perhaps not, because it was just after that. But I, I, have to, I have to work on that theory, perhaps. That's great, because that was a question. <laughs> right. Where did this come from? Was it a rebellion against the Human League <laughs> and 30 years of synth? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, want, I, I wonder. Yeah, these things are cyclical. And, and, um, and people do get tired of sounds. And, and I'm sure after a certain amount of banjo, probably not nearly, it wouldn't take nearly as long as getting tired of the synth. Uh, people will get tired of the banjo. <laughs> that was already happened. <laughs> I don't think so, but there's a, there's, a, there's a pressure, isn't there, on musicians now, because now we've got international stars in the world of pop music who aren't millionaires because the records aren't on sale in, on CD form for ten ninety nine. You've got to go out and perform and build audience from scratch. And that's it, isn't it? It, it, It's it's changed the music. You know, you're not going to have a genius producer go to Montserrat and spend three years with the band uh, making these beautiful high-level production albums. Johnny, so much has changed. You know, when again, when we started out, it was about being in bands. We'd go to each other's houses. We'd practice. Now, people aren't going to guitar shops. They're going to Mac shops. They buy a laptop and they can do it all themselves. So, and which, by the way, is a separate problem about studios closing down because it's expensive to use a studio when you can just get a, you can do it on a laptop and um, uh, everyone does it themselves and then how do you get to the world where well, it's through social media and I, I, I wasn't brought up with social media I'm 
bloody useless at social media. Um, and uh, But some of these kids, you get a song on TikTok, it goes viral. Uh, A&R guys now, they don't go to the pubs of London to find our acts. They just sit at home and scroll through TikTok and see what's going, go, go captures the imagination of the kids. And, uh, you know, it's a completely different oh. way the music is... I'm not, I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a bad thing. I say that without um, judgment. It's just... It's it's quite alien to me. I have to keep learning about how it's... Sure, we yeah. have to be open-minded in order to be successful on a long-range basis. That Sea Shanty song. Exactly, that's a good example. That Sea Shanty song just went absolute wild and they got signed off the back of it. Yeah. I think the guy who did it. Yeah. And What's his follow-up what sound like? <laughs> <laughs> the second album syndrome. <laughs> Yeah, the second viral clip syndrome. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know about that. It's amazing what's successful and what isn't. Yeah. Um, I've had I've had Sorry. belting clips, which I thought, oh, this is a belter, and you get, oh, what do you mean, three hundred people? I want more than that. Yeah. And then then you put something else out, and then you realise it touches people's hearts. It's a story. Yeah. And people want to hear or see something which which touches them or has a story. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism if you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from a journalist. And often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts... Think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. You know what? That's I, I had this conversation um, before I saw you this morning with a songwriter who's who's staying in, um, staying at my house at the moment, and I was talking about my new podcast, and I was saying about one episode. I'm really surprised that that didn't get the views, and I was saying this: some episodes get crazy numbers, which I never would have thought they did. I assumed, assumed it wasn't a good interview, and some which I thought, oh, this is incredible. This will this has had all the makings to be a success. It doesn't really take off and it's the same with songs he was talking about a song he'd written when he was 16 and for some reason it was the most played song on his Spotify thing he said never played it live and he doesn't understand why anyone likes it and I think that's true when you write a song you might think it's brilliant and some of my favourite songs that I've written 
don't necessarily have the views. And you can see all the views now. On, you see all the analytics on, online. You can see which songs. It's not Bare just naked. which albums. Yeah. yeah. It's not just which albums. And as you were saying before we started this conversation, on your podcast, you can even see which sections of the podcasts are people are forwarding to that they're they're liking. You can see it, see it all, and it's quite surprising. It, you know, it's um, so so with the with the song. I, I think that's kind of sometimes it's frustrating because you don't like the song, but it's successful. But I think you've got to embrace it. Just it's, it's, use it as information. But there's a lot of laughter in you as well as a creative, <laughs> and um, I. Uh, <laughs> you know what Disney said of every film, there had to be. Uh, for every tear in, in his film, every tear there had to be a laugh, and for every laugh there had to be a tear, so that you get this full spectrum of human emotion. Light and, and shade. Light and shade, there you Indeed. Go. Now, um, I'm intrigued by your name, Winston, because... You had an uncle called Winston. My uncle grandpa. Peter. Yeah. His middle name is Winston, Peter mm-hmm. Winston. And I've mentioned that more than once, because my grandfather came here as a penniless refugee from Vienna, Vienna, grateful to Britain for saving his life from the Nazis. Uh He was an ex-professional footballer and he wasn't young and about the age of 35 had to pick up, work in a factory as a typewriter mechanic, a very good one he was. He then set up a shop in his late 30s. It was called Britannia typewriter services wow. and his firstborn son Peter Winston Persana. Winston, are you called Winston for the same reason? Well, that is a, that's <laughs> a great story. What year did he come over? Uh, April 1939, and Uncle Peter was born in 1941. I love that. Did you see Stoppard's play, Leopoldstadt? Yes. Because it sounds it's, it's, it's that background. a similar story. Yes. Which was very similar to my. Uh, story well except well yeah very similar except mine were from trans my, my my grandmother was transylvanian jew so what is now romania but was then hungary and they left late they left in 40 december november 42 I think. oh my god and is it well, i wonder if i've got that right and uh, the, the holocaust in earnest started late in hungary i think 1944 44 yeah but it but it the numbers are just they're, they're horrible and like, fast. Horrible and fast, and um, and all of her cousins and aunts and uncles were were rounded up, killed in the camps or on the death marches. There was there was a, one or two survivors. She had an aunt that survived, Aunt Titi, um, and and that that Tom Stoppard play really helped me understand a lot about my grandma because she uh, uh, they changed their names. And they did, they were in denial about what happened a lot of the time. Uh, you know, we couldn't talk about it. And um, but we knew about it. We know we've seen a, uh, her, her her grandpa. Her father said to my mum, you know, just so you know, like we're Jewish, because like your mum wouldn't, her mum wouldn't talk about it. And anyway, so what Stoppard does great in his play Leopoldstadt is he deals with what I understand to be Freudian concepts, or I haven't really got deep into Freud, but. The idea of repressed memories, false memories, um, uh, you know, fake stories that you tell yourself to get through. And he dealt with all of that, which I think is, which is what a lot of of Jews had to do to deal with the trauma of that just crime of all crimes. And um, uh, so my, so my grandmother, they, they fled to fruit. I have her diaries, by the way, so... I, uh, all the way through that period so she described they went through Munich 
at that time, a freight paper. She, they stayed the night in Munich outside the station. She describes seeing Nazi of, a Nazi officer falling and slipping on the ice and the other Nazi officers pointing and laughing. It's an amazing diary because she would have been 13 or so, 14. Well, she, she was born in 28. So, uh, or tw- oh, she's a teenager. Yes. But she didn't fully understand what was going on. And so it reads a bit like um, Harper Lee to Kill a Mockingbird or J.D. Yeah. Salinger um, c- uh, Catching the Rye because you, as a reader, you know what's going on, but as a child and they don't. So you, you're filling in the gaps of your mind. And so they go through Munich, um, they end up in France and then they spend, and, and then after, I think they last, they were in France for a year and that didn't go, and I think at some point they had to leave and they went to Lisbon, but they were anyway. There was a lot of Jewish exiles there, and they lived the rest of the uh, the rest of the war. There. She even told me one story. This is an example of how they would suppress their Jewishness. She said when they were crossing the border into Spain from France, they were in a car. It was her, her younger brother, and her mum and dad. Her mum and dad went into border control and left the two kids in the car. Nazi officer came over to the car, tapped on the window and did a hand gesture to unroll the window um, and said to her, hey, little Jewish girl, where are you running to? Right. And my grandmother, in German, said back to the Nazi officer, who are you calling Jewish? So there's a lot there to unpack. It's a very complex story because, firstly, her parents would have told her, you're not Jewish, you're not Jewish, you're not Jewish, to kind of... and, and, and but the family is more complex than that. Like in the Stop, Stoppard's play, yeah. where, the, where the characters have both a bris and a baptism, that would be the same thing in my family. They would have, and, and I never understood that. Why did they have, why did they accept certain Christian things whilst having certain Jewish uh, traditions? And I think it's to do with wanting to be accepted in high society in those societies. Yeah. So anyway, Which of course they learned they never would. They never would, exactly. And uh, my grandma was also a brilliant woman. Her diary, she, despite, she would, at that age, she would have spoken Hungarian and Romanian fluently. She also spoke and wrote French fluently and had kept her diaries in French. And um, so, so she, we've got all of this. And um, uh, so she would deny that and, uh, and denied her Jewishness for the rest of her life, actually. Um, and it's only now that she's passed that I feel like I can talk about it uh, at all, really, because it would. It, it, there's even members of my family scattered around Europe who uh, uh, now would be offended by the concept that they are Jewish. Really? Yeah, because it's just like they would be defending her, and it, it would just a lot of it would cause a lot of there's Did a long ar- the long the long arch of. Of, of the damage done by yes, the Holocaust. The, the trauma Did she marry a Gentile or was her husband Jewish? She married an Italian. Right. And uh, and then she had complex religions after that, but they, they yes. shook all of it. There was no Jewish part of their culture sure. after the war. They didn't do anything Jewish after that. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then uh, they ended up in Paris after the war. My mum's French. And then my mum moved to England. So how did we start this uh, conversation? I the the convert. I, I don't know, but it's all it's all. Brilliant. Oh yeah, you asked me about your uncle because you. My uncle. Winston. Yes, I. You know, are you named after Winston, like uh, my uncle Peter's Churchill? Yeah. Well, I thought for a while I'd assumed that I'd be named after Churchill because my dad loved Churchill, 
Um, and then I've re- learned recently, no, because my mum um, just goes, no, 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 it's because I like the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was in the zeitgeist. Uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll decide, we'll let the dear listener decide uh, uh, how influential the name Winston was on uh, Sir Winston. Um, <laughs> the, the other, I mean, more recently, the Winston I've been related to is Winston Smith. I mean, all this stuff yes. with... with we talked 1984. About yeah, exactly. Um, the the Israel-Palestine, when you just feel like everyone's going along with this group psychosis, uh, but also more partic- more explicitly with BLM, Antifa. Now I see it with the trans stuff. I was getting that with the trans stuff as, as well. And when I was living in New York, you could not criticize trans ideology for like. It would just end up in a dinner party like that, snap of yeah. the finger. Yeah. And uh, so I've, I've felt like Winston Smith more than anyone uh, over the last few years. But I love that your, your family paid... Um, uh, was, was Such great, homage. Was, homage. That, yeah. What greater honour could there be? And, and that, that's... I think that's, uh, that's the case for a lot of Jews. Very grateful to the British. And, and um, uh, I, unlike the French, we should say. Because we, we also liberated France. We did. We and, did. And <laughs> where's uh, the bloody gratitude? Where's there? the bloody gratitude? Even get invited to commemorations and you know, you well, know, so. um, and you know, without unpacking this too much in a conversation that has been rich in so many other ways, <laughs> um, I voted Brexit mm-hmm. because because of the French. <laughs> well, we, you know, let's just say my grandfather was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not going to interrupt a good wholesome laugh like that. Essentially, my grandparents were kicked out of continental Europe, stateless, and embraced by a country which had rather different values to continental Europe, and I still think do, Mm -hmm. and so therefore the ideological decision is easy. I love Europe, Mm. but like Roger Daltrey... I love Europe. I don't like the European Union. Yeah, yeah, it's very and simple. that's it's it's not difficult to understand, and uh, and 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 we take it from from there. So um, hence British values, um, and proud of being British and Jewish, and being allowed to be these things like so many of my and our previous generations mm. were not allowed to be. On that, yes, you know, one of the insanities of the the vote, uh, the Remain campaign. Part of Project Fear was that if we leave Europe, World War Three will start, as if World War Two was somehow defeated by the EU. No, World War Two. Uh, sorry, World War Two. The Nazis. Nazis were defeated by the British and the Allied forces. But for let's not forget for a year, the Great Churchill led our country, standing up alone in the world against the Nazis. And uh, it's got nothing to do with the EU. And actually, I'm, I support my bar- ballot on Brexit. And at this point. I'm embarrassed that I support my ballot because I bought into some of the Project Fear, not that particular bit of Project Fear, but ultimately it's about sovereignty, and um, and uh, and that's and that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm I don't I, I love Europe. My mother's French, yeah, but I I don't I don't want Brussels telling me what to do. They're two different they can things. Do one. They can fucking do one. <laughs> um, so you wouldn't spoil your ballot paper today? No, I'd vote leave today. There you go. This is not the first musical interview I've done on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Huh. Trevor Horn uh-huh. has also been on the podcast, another musical genius. And when you think of his uh, library as the man who invented the 80s, he really did. And huh. Huh. I think of all the diverse sounds and how he mastered 
I think at that time, the perfection that was at his fingertips. And you think of Owner of a Lonely Heart mm. and The Art of Noise. And also, going back, I mean, it was Ahmet Ertegun, that legendary uh, impresario of, of, of music, Aretha Franklin, and uh-huh. playing with Hans Zimmer in The Buggles. I mean, you know, the guy's le- le- led a life. And I've come to know him because he goes to my synagogue. Uh-huh. Um, and he spends time reading the Old Testament in English, of course. But he's not Jewish. He's not Jewish because uh, he married a, uh, a Jewish woman who's, who tragically is no longer with us. Mm. And I asked him the question. I said, um, you know, why do you come to synagogue? And you've done it for 30 years. You know, do you need a checkup from the neck up? And he said, <laughs> he, 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 said uh, he said, no, my, uh, my, my wife was Jewish. And so therefore my children are Jewish. But I said, but it's more than that. And of course, that's when... He told me that I believe in Judaism more than I believe in anything else. Mm. And I think that's a very, very special, very special thing to say. Mm, That's very special. And he he thought about converting, but the rabbi said uh, he gets uh, he gets special dispensation just to uh, to come to synagogue and not do that. And uh, I'm going to see if I can ask the rabbi that as well. (laughs) We shall find out. Is this your first listen to my series? Maybe you've popped in before. Well, click subscribe and tell your friends about Johnny Gould's Jewish State. There's some great episodes to scroll back for. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends that I describe in, in the war on the West. I mean, it actually it bucks some of the trends I described in the strange death of Europe. I mean, those are her. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel, um, for instance, as there is in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to um, unite its people. Julie Birchill. I've got such a funny fact about Israel, Israel and Brummies. About 15 years ago, an Israeli bar advertised in a Birmingham... I'm not making this up, and everyone says I am. They advertised in a Birmingham local newspaper. Did they want to go and work in Tel Aviv? And it was because to the Israeli ear, the Brummie accent is apparently wildly sexy and drives them mad. That's unbelievable. Well, I know, yeah. I should try it out. <laughs> Do you think I can get anyone I wanted? Yeah. On the beach, all right. Oh, yeah. All right, kid. But I don't know where it came from, but it was a genuine thing. And how, if you Google it, I'm sure you'll... How am you, Bab? <laughs> you want to come for a drink? Jonathan Friedland. I think there is a comfortable way of telling the Second World War story, which is all evil resided in Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler and the Germans and the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good. The Allies, the United States, Britain, everybody else. Now, that's not true. It's more complicated. It can't be. It can't be. And if you fancy supporting my work, you can do it with as little as a pound. Go to patreon.com slash Gould, Or if you're feeling particularly generous, give me a monthly donation at donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. And so the amazing thing that I think you were a pioneer of is that in the olden days, before 2008, Virgin or Decca or Sony, as Prince told us by writing Slave on His Cheek, were the owners of the 
content, but mm. you owned the bricks and mortar night bosun's locker. So the bosun's locker. Do you remember? I think it's called West Cornish pasties. A chain of pasties. <laughs> West Cornwall pasties. Yes. Like a chain of pasties. And there was one in uh, on the King's Road that had this club underneath. And and I went one night. I would have been seventeen or eighteen. There was no one in the club. I went with a friend for a beer. And I say club. It's, it was smaller than your living room, right? Including the stage and the bar. Smaller than this room. And and uh, low ceiling. You know, you, if you were tall, your head would be scraping along the along the top <laughs> of it. And I sat down with a couple of mates and we looked at this tiny stage which could fit about one and a half people and a long-haired dude from America who looked a bit like a kind of cartoon Jesus uh, sat, spent about 20 minutes sorting out the PA for his electric guitar and he was doing his own sound whilst on stage. Eventually sorted it all out then turned his guitar upside down pressed play on his, his CDR player or CD player, which was play the beat and then rapped for half an hour. It was, and for me, it was hilarious. We invited him into the band actually. Um, <laughs> and he, and so the band that formed out of that was Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers, which was a, a nine piece sleaze rap, country rap band, crap band. Sea um, <laughs> rap. Yeah. We started tour. We, did, we ended up touring the UK and we had, we had great fun, but it was total carnage and chaos. And um, we put some, we put some songs out and if, if uh, keen fans will find them online, but, um, the, so the, but the place itself, the bosun's locker, I became friendly with the guy who was running it, and I said, "Look, give me one night, I'll get people in here because no one was going." And to just I said, "Give it to me, I can fill this room." And uh, so I then just got my friends. I was like, "Right, I've got this night. You 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 play five songs, you play a few songs. We'll set up a band, and we'll fill the room." Which, by the way, you only need ten people in there; it's full. But, uh, and this over the course of about a year, we got to a point where we would have 50 or 60 kids in there. It was rammed, sweaty, no one could breathe. They were even crowd surfing, taking in mind you could barely, you know, stand up. It was just, it was chaos. It was, it was magic in there. And there would be queues around uh, the street. Again, it's kids. And I don't even think the kids cared about the music that they were seeing. It was because they could not get ID'd and they could drink there. But that's, that was, we didn't care about that because we had a crowd to play to and that's where we learned our chops and that's where um, certain members of my band started playing and uh, Laura Marling, I started playing with her there. She, she, um, uh, the, the Justin uh, Hayward Young, who went on to be lead singer of The Vaccines, Alan Powell, Bean, Beans on Toast, who I mentioned earlier in this interview. Or just It seemed like everyone was in there and it was a great place to just make mistakes in front of drunk kids so they didn't really know. But And you learn how to control a crowd, you learn how to be entertaining. Um, a lot of it was fun and, and uh, comical as much as it was earnest and serious. And uh, it, you know, wooden panelled room and, and just, it, it was great. And then I went to America for a road trip for a couple of months when I was about 19 I came back and it closed down, which was probably good because it kind of remains, a, 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 you know, stuck in time. Yeah, like it didn't, it didn't like yeah. kind of die out. It just had this moment for a year. That's and a half wonderful. Years. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, um, as as you go through life, you have to move on. Mm. Time waits for no man, mm. and from this embryo came, as you mentioned, unbelievable success with Mumford and Sons. Yeah, lots for of a bands. long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, lots of bands came out of that who have gone on to have very astonishing careers. But um, 
the the yeah we came actually it wasn't immediate with with the band I think it was later I think what came out of that is that we all started playing with Laura Marling as her session band and then out of the session band came Mumford and Sons and a couple other uh, bands but Mumford and Sons wasn't long after and there was the Troubadour as well in Earl's Court I don't know but I think that's still going and we could do nights there. it was a bit bigger so once the crowd grew we went moved there and, and what we all had in common with the the band as we loved touring and we, and we loved the same kind of music and all our friends had gone to university so then we started playing to the university towns which was great again same concept bunch of students not really interested in the music just wanted to come get pissed and see their mates and so we would tour universities and again improve our chops get better at it and but we would keep doing that and we grew a crowd and people wanted to come back and this was MySpace era so YouTube didn't exist. We, the songs developed. We built an, a little bit of an audience on, on, on MySpace. And um, things grew and grew and grew. And we, and we had a collection of songs that ended up um, recording in London at East Coast Studios with Marcus Dravs. And uh, we had great management, uh, Adam Tidehope and um, Everybody's Management. I think they had a different name at the time. And... and Things just gradually came together and and just increased one step at a time. We went from the universities to playing uh, pubs to people we didn't know anymore, rather than it just being our friends, to support on like the academies, supporting bands like the Maccabees. Laura Marley, again, was, I keep mentioning her, she was very um, generous and, and had us supporting her a bunch of times. And it just uh, it grew very, very gradually. And we got support slots at big venues like that, the Roundhouse in London or... Um, Brixton Academy supporting the Pogues and then you get to the Forum you get to the Apollo and then just one step at a time every Shepherd's Bush you get bigger and bigger venues and and eventually we made it that we were playing the O2 you know, several nights at the O2 and, and headlining High Park it was it was yeah it was kind of again I said this earlier but it was a bit of a miracle really amazing and how many people were at these biggest gigs? I have a feeling the biggest would have been Rock Werchter in Belgium where maybe sixty to eighty, but some people even said a hundred. But I, I, I don't thousand, yeah. And and we headlined Glastonbury as well, which was that was that's right. You know, that's the mecca of music, and and, and that felt. But we're talking about moment. literally millions of fans around the world. Yeah, it was it was um, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal, and again a, a miracle. Yeah, you know, I think the other boys in the band are absolutely talented and were talented, and and uh, and uh, I think that their their talent and hard work. Absolutely, was a big part of that. But I, but I also think um, we were very lucky as well. Just a lot of people really believed in the band and threw their weight behind it and worked for it. So it was it was a, it was a joint effort with hundreds of people to make it a great thing. It was it was it was very special. And then in March twenty twenty one, after fourteen years, you read a book, and the book was unmasked. Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy, written by... Andy No, Andy No, And then you decided to apologise for praising the book and that you would be taking a break from the band because presumably you were getting absolute pylons on Twitter, which was damaging, if you like, the popularity of the, of the band itself. So I, through the pandemic... I had been catching up on the reading I'd hoped to do after all those years of touring. So um, I kind of, 
I read everything really from Mao's Got Red Book to War and Peace and everything in between. And um, one of the books that I read was Andy Noe's book, to, a book about Antifa and the BLM riots in 2020 mainly. And, and it's not a history of Antifa, it's an, a contemporary American Antifa. And so I tweeted about that book as I had tweeted about other books beforehand and all hell broke loose it became a, uh, a, a not just a Twitter storm, but it ended up in, in media and press and a big story. Uh, quite surprising to me because I only had about 3,000 followers on Twitter. So I was like, what the hell is going on? And initially, to be honest, I was like, you know, it's just a Twitter thing. It'll, it'll pass. But what, what people don't realize about, or, or rather what people say about uh, social media, it's, or it's not real life until it's real life. And then so then what happens is you have the phone calls and the people you love, the people you're working with, all very concerned and, and scared. And, 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 then you, and then it's, well, I don't want them to be hurting, so I want to put this out. I want to put this fire out. I want to calm it down. And, and so the apology went out. Um, I was made to take time away from the band. And you were made to. Who made you? To be honest, I was at that time open to being wrong about the book and I was like okay well maybe I don't know this whole story and I think this is true that agreeable people particularly if you have high trait agreeableness you and you offend someone you're probably open to like oh if you're at a dinner party and someone's upset what you're saying go I'm so sorry what have I said something that's offended you so I was open to being right well maybe I've actually done something wrong here so I issued the apology and, and then spent many weeks ended up being months, really exploring this topic. What did I not know? What have I got wrong about this particular topic? And the more I looked into it, and I spoke to uh, people in, in journalism, um, I spoke to uh, people who are experts on the topic, uh, Americans, I was really trying to find out, what do I not know here? And I came to the conclusion that actually I wasn't wrong, that the, the what so one of the important things the book exposes that in the first fourteen days of the BLM riots in America there were nineteen people killed, numerous businesses, predominantly black businesses, destroyed. The Black Lives Matter movement was very very damaging to black Americans, and actually I think that's really important that we know that because um, that's those are injustices that that shouldn't happen, and. Then in that in that period, the author, because beforehand, I called him brave in my tweet. Beforehand, he had been attacked whilst whilst covering for these far left mobs on these far left mobs. Which, by the way, they were also burning down federal buildings in in Portland, Oregon. There was all this uproar, of course, on January sixth about what happened and the storming of the Capitol, and it was right for there to be uproar, I think. But there was no uproar really about the federal buildings. And actually, as a side point. You'll see this in the media, depending on the slant, like CNN and stuff, and, the, and MSNBC. They'll cover uh, the far right activity, but they will never cover the far left activity. And I think Fox News works in reverse. They don't really touch on the far right stuff, but they touch. Yes. They talk about the far left stuff, and it annoys me that they both act that way. Yes. And I think one of the reasons I liked, I, I felt compelled to tweet the book subconsciously at the time because it, it was an accident. I, I didn't really think that much about it. I think one of the reasons I felt compelled to do it is because. I was surrounded by liberals 
And I thought, well, this is another important part of the puzzle here that you need to read. So yes. I felt like it was an important book for that reason. So then the author was attacked once again in that period. There's video footage of him being attacked by Antifa in Portland whilst reporting on them. A horrible footage of him trying to escape into a hotel. This must have been about May uh, 2021. And but that really affected my conscience. And I thought, well, this, I, I'm, I'm participating in the lie. I'm now on the side of the attackers. I'm on the side, by, by, by apologising and saying and, and implying that the book is bad, yes. I'm, on, I'm in, I, you know, complicit in this. In this Do you thing. regret saying sorry? The, the, uh, the, the, the apology really buggered everything. Yes. Because if we just ignored it, it wouldn't have affected my conscience. No. Because that apology stood there. That apology really... And another thing that was happening to me is that apology meant that the, the, the more I disbelieved the apology, the more I believed I had nothing to be sorry for. Now, I should say, I was sorry and remain sorry for the publicity mess that I caused the band. Because mm. I know that's upsetting for them. I didn't mean for it to be. I'd crossed a line. And by the way, there are a few of these lines. I didn't appreciate it would happen. It was an accident. Yeah. There are a few of these lines. Like if you speak about Palestine and Israel on the wrong side, let's say if you're pro-Israel in the music industry, you're going to get fucking pushback. Mm -hmm. If you talk about trans, look at J.K. Rowling. There are some certain totemic issues that just cause yeah. hell. And Antifa is one of those. The only other musician I could find who's spoken out on Antifa is Nick Cave, who... Uh, it has a fantastic blog called, uh, I think it's called Red Right Hand or something like that. And he also did a tour of music and question and answers in between. He's a really interesting character in, in musically. He seems to really be a three-thinking kind of dude. And he very careful and explicit in saying there's awful far-right stuff and there's awful far-left stuff. And, and he's a beautiful turn of quite poetic. They're kind of in this weird sexual dance between each other. And actually, he ended up being a bit of a inspiration to me when I wrote my letter of resignation because he was an example of someone who's who's able to say both both of you are acting like dicks. And we're talking about the fire mm. fire. Anyway, so I got to this point where my consciousness was not in a good place. I had to save the band. The hassle radio stations had had, had said that they wouldn't play the band because of my opinions. Uh, one festival dropped me from the bill. Um, here in England, and it was unfair on them to suffer for my opinions. The only way I could see out of the situation was to stand by my opinions and leave the band, which turned out did, I mean, it's brought me to other problems, because but life's complicated, but it did, it did, at the moment I quit, or announced it, my conscience was clear, I'd got my dignity back and I'd got my um, soul back, really. And it did feel like getting my soul back. And um, I had, a, yeah, a whole other bunch of problems, but at least that was cleared. I felt like I was right again with the universe. My, 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 my spirit was again in harmony with, with my concept of truth. So you left to exercise your free speech about politics with your conscience clear and your freedom to do so but what a moment of incredible sadness for you because you thought you were going to play with your friends these guys till your 60s yeah I, so sad it, yeah it was a very look 
I look back on it now, and it was a very sad way for it to end for me. But but ultimately, we had 14 incredible years, and it, what, we made great music that I'm so proud of. And I want it to be remembered as a, a great thing, a happy time. Yeah. And yeah. that the band, when we were four, we were a light in the world, or, or and not to be sort of too sort of arrogant, but like a force for good, I guess, yeah. in, in yeah. a small way. Yeah. Are you still in touch with your friends in the band? I wish them very well, oh. and um, and they're very talented guys. I'm sure whatever they do will be successful and and spread joy. I asked that same question of Nick Timothy, the uh, former chief of staff of <laughs> Theresa May, <laughs> and I said, "Are you in touch with Theresa May?" And he went, "No." <laughs> And so now we move on to the next chapter. <laughs> because with your identity firmly uh, pushed forward, not looking back, you launched the Martial Matters podcast hosted by The Spectator. And it means you interview people around the world in the creative industries and beyond mm. to find out what indeed is the state of the arts. And uh, because you're now a culture warrior... Um, or at least that's what they've told you you are, Um, you should now speak your mind, and it would be stupid not to, because here I am, Winston Marshall (laughs) 2.0. I think this is Winston Marshall 12.0. 12.0, yeah. Um, 12.1. Maybe there's a couple of of bugs in the system we have to keep keep going on. Now that I've come out to speak my mind, it it would be foolish... Not to, but also I think that that was part of my decision is leaving. It's like I could have a life where I stay in the band, keep quiet, nod along when I disagree, or I could have a life where I speak the truth when I see it, when when I see an injustice, I talk about it, and actually, that's who I am. I can't. I'm not going to shut up. I'm gonna. Um, I'm gonna get it wrong. And even in the podcast, I've made mistakes and I had my mind changed on things, and that's great. And I don't even mind doing that publicly. And. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the intellectual stimulation. Had some great guests and uh, from left progressives like David Baddiel talking about his book Jews Don't Count, and um, to uh, I, my last guest was Candace Owen, an American conservative uh, broadcaster and author, and everyone in between. And I, I love it, and um, I. I so people are starting to listen, which is which has been the thing because I wasn't very good at the beginning, um, but that's okay. And and I, you know I'm learning and and loving that. And I, I'm not sure I'd like the idea of being a culture warrior because I, I, I want to create culture rather than fight culture. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> and, well, maybe there's plenty of time. Yeah. But there's also people like Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. Ian Hersey, Ali, Lawrence Fox. You mentioned mm-hmm. Caddy Owens. You're going to build up audience because that's how it works mm, mm. Uh, within a, 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 should we say, a paradigm of, of people. Mm. You've mentioned Badil as well, which is, which is great too. But you are going to build up audience because there's an expectation of what's going to be said. People need the support of, of their content, which is why people only read the Daily Mail or only read the mm. Mirror. And I guess podcasting is the same. Mm. But this is a problem, isn't it, where you're sometimes pushed into an echo chamber, you still need and want to be challenged. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it could have been very easy for me 
given what happened, to walk into the arms of Conservatives, which would be an un uncomfortable thing for me. Firstly, I was raised canvassing for the Lib Dems. My dad even ran for the Lib Dems in the Lib Dem SDP alliance of 87. And I still consider myself a liberal, a classical liberal. Yes. I, I don't consider myself conservative. I, don't, I certainly don't consider myself progressive. Um, but I guess that makes me a centrist or something. But I don't, I don't even think that's quite right. So, and The Spectator is, a, I guess, centre-right conservative magazine, but it also does publish left stuff. It's got quite a... It's fairly broad church, I think. Um, the, the, I guess there's a small irony is that the opinions that I had, which made me a pariah in the music industry, when it comes to real life back here on earth <laughs> i'm actually now working at the oldest political magazine i think in the world it's 200 years old so it's perfectly acceptable opinions um, but that's uh, i think that says a lot about the state of the the music industry yeah. and uh, it it is a very small industry very and it's a massive echo chamber and but sorry back to your question yes there is an echo uh, I, there's a danger of being in an echo chamber and 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 I'm quite aware of that. And one thing I liked about being surrounded by people of different opinions to mine is that my opinions really got chiselled. My, my opinions really got sharpened because I was forced to contend with the best examples or best arguments of people who held different opinions to me. And I, and I do like that. And I do try and seek that. And, and I guess one problem with the podcast and I've found is that it's much easier to get conservative or traditional liberal uh, thinkers and people than progressives. And this is a problem of progressive, contemporary progressive thinking. There's a couple, but uh, one is there's this guilt by association, so they won't get into a conversation with people that they don't want to be associated with, and they might not want to be associated with me, which is ridiculous because everyone has a different opinion. It's ridiculous. Another problem of contemporary progressive thinking in the West is is the fallacy of the uh, goodies and baddies where that we're in this kind of spiritual battle where you're either on the good side or the bad side instead of, again, the liberal concept best articulated by Solzhenitsyn that the line between good and evil cuts through the centre of every human heart. We are all fallen. The Christian, judo, well, that's judeo-Christian uh, uh, philosophy. We are all fallen. We are all... We are all um, capable of good and evil, and that is that has been lost, I think, in contemporary progressives, which back to, becomes a problem for me booking because uh, progressives are less likely to get into those sort of podcasts. Or rather, I should say, it's so easy for me to get conservatives and liberals to come on. So it's you, and when you're doing a podcast, you've had a very successful po podcast coming at your hundredth episode. I'm sure you'll know so you, you take the best you can. Who are, who are up for it, and, and it's not it's hard to get some guests are very hard to get in some some reasons. So anyway, sure, I mean sorry. that's right. I I can't couldn't get David Badil, so many congratulations <laughs> on, on getting on getting David. Now, uh, here's a quote from you, Winston. Right. I have a little bit of a frustration with the politicising of music. I don't mind when artists are political, but I think politics is effing complicated. It's different from three years ago when we were doing uh, promos for Wilder Mind. We weren't ever asked about politics. People didn't care, but now everyone's got a bloody opinion. Everything is, quotes, politics this, politics that. It's a massive change. And this is where you and I um, 
sort of come together because uh, I was fascinated indeed by your sad, sad resignation, I think, from Mumford and Sons, because this happened to me hmm. as a lifelong supporter and reporter and local journalist in the old days of Aston Villa. Mm-hmm. And Aston Villa was a massive part of my life, mm-hmm. um, even to a sort of lesser extent, my identity, because I also associated it with my immigrant grandfather's arrival in this country and his acceptance as a Briton, mm. even though he was from Vienna. Mm. And this beautiful idea that even with his wonky foreign accent, he could be British from day one because he had a passport. He can't be English, but he can be British. And he set up a business and he was an ex-professional footballer and Villa oh. was literally the next train station to his shop uh, in Birmingham. And suddenly, uh, with all that in my mind, being a Brummie, being associated with Aston Villa, being part of a tribe, tribe, um, suddenly I wasn't. Suddenly I was the Jew. Mm. The Jew who supported Aston Villa. We don't want you in our club. Um, What kind of club is it then if you don't want me in, Mm. in your club? This, um, your, this story there, it's, 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 what it's happens, really sad. I mean, I don't know if you've told your audience, but it's worth repeating because uh, you, you, it was around Corbyn, you were speaking out against the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party when he was uh, head of the party. Yes. And then... I, I worked uh, with the supporters trust. I was a patron. I had a, a profile as, if you like, a, a celebrity supporter. I haven't got much to choose from. Uh, there's Prince William and David Cameron now. Bob <laughs> Monkhouse used to be a Villa fan. God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> and me, Nigel Kennedy. Um, and so I was a patron. Benjamin Zephaniah as well, the poet. Uh-huh. And then they said, would you like to be a director instead? And I thought, ooh, that appeals to my ego and my journalistic background. Yeah. I'm an idiot. Because <laughs> it was the worst decision of uh, of my professional life, if you like. Although I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have given a bit back to that community in terms of of charity and involvement with the supporters. But uh, the minute I commented about the Gaza war, fighting people like Gary Lineker, who is a pacifist, but in the Jeremy Corbyn style of peace. You were fighting him, what, online? Um, Yeah, he blocked me because... He blocked me because I accused him, correctly, I think, of destabilising society. I, he had nine million followers and he started to comment on the Israeli defence of its country by bombing sites where there were missiles and completely disregarding the fact that literally thousands of missiles were being directed at Israeli citizens and actually even on their own people in Gaza, which the bombs didn't reach um, Israeli territory. And this was at the same time as on Finchley Road in London, four guys in a car were megaphoning from Blackburn all the way down from down the M1, we'll rape your daughters, we'll rape your women, etc. Yeah, free, free Palestine. Yeah. And I said to him, you have an obligation to keep your mouth shut at this point because there were protests in Hyde Park which were beginning to get violent and he blocked me for that. Unforgivable, actually. Well, I, I certainly have seen terrible disparity 
in the way in Britain people talk about Israel Palestine, and in the music industry, it's 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 absolutely one of those topics that uh, it drives me crazy because it's almost as if Palestinians, the Palestinian side, can do no wrong, and I don't even think people know that Palestinians are firing rockets at Israel, yeah. and unbelievably one-sided. So uh, it's I find it very frustrating, uh, and I think it's tied in also with a lot of anti-Semitism. That's not to say that I don't feel for the plight of Palestinians. Of course, I've met Palestinians. I've been to Palestine several times. I, I, I've what even is Palestine? You mean Judea and Samaria, the West Bank? I've been to the West Bank. Have you been I've, into Gaza? No, I've not been to no. Gaza. Um, I've DJed in Bethlehem, um, and uh, I've been to Israel several times, and, and uh, both beautiful places. Um, so I feel your. I certainly feel your your frustration um, that he uh, that we're here saying and and actually that that what was happening in Finchley Road and across London that that anti-semitism was absolutely revolting Tracy Ann Oberman came on to my podcast to talk about it because she experienced some of it she I think she lived near there or something like that but um astonishing particularly this is a, in a time in Britain where we're all talking about uh being against anti-black racism uh the BLM was huge in football and the, but when it came to anti-Semitism football, there was crickets. And you told me a story before we started recording, which is a continuation of the story you were telling. Aston Villa received 26,000 tweets of abuse when they said, Happy Hanover, at that same period. And what was striking to me about that, and, and anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist uh, yes. online abuse, what's striking to me about that is I'd never heard of that. Right, yes. twenty six thousand tweets of of, of yes. uh, racist abuse, and I'd not heard of it. And let's not forget that last summer, again, I said to the, you off air, when in the, England played in the Euros and we lost in the final, there was a huge uproar on Twitter because of of, of alleged uh, anti black racism because the, the, apparently racists were pointing out the fact that the three players who had missed the penalty were all black. When actually, yes, there had been some racism, but it was a handful of racism. It wasn't even, I'm sure, from England. I think it was from across the world. But if you looked at it, it streamed. There was half a million tweets or something on the issue. So it looked like there was all this anti-black racism But when there really wasn't very much. But then when there's this actual anti-Semitism... Yeah. It doesn't even make the papers. It is. It's uh, There's a blind spot there. Um, and indeed, you've spoken out about BDS as well, um, mm-hmm. about Big Thief cancelling their concerts in Israel. You wrote an op-ed for the Jewish Chronicle. Mm-hmm. And the reasons for Big Thief cancelling their shows in Israel was due to bullying by the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Now, um, they're an indie rock four-piece band from New York, but their bassist is an Israeli citizen. And that they would play, they agreed to play two charity shows in Tel Aviv, donating to NGOs that provide medical and humanitarian aid to Palestinian children. But then they cancelled the gigs with a statement, noting that since the announcement, they had been in constant dialogue with friends and family, BDS supporters and allies. And yes, as you say correctly, they have been bullied Mm -hmm. uh, into doing that. Well, I should... State before commenting onto that. Firstly, they make amazing music. They are a, they are a great band, and that some of their songs are just beautiful. So I'm a great 
fan of their music. I've not had the pleasure of meeting them, but maybe having published that op-ed, they wouldn't grant me that pleasure now. But uh, I, so I'm not careful not for it to be an ad hominem on a, on a personal level. I thought that they had got it absolutely right. We're playing Israel. They'd even played in Israel before. We're playing Israel, as you mentioned. One of them was an Israeli citizen, and they would donate all the money to the Palestinians, which meant that Israelis who loved music would go to the show, and their money would go and to Palestinians who are suffering. Who would be against that? That is fantastic. Well, the problem is that some of those charities are cover. For terrorism, that's not that all of them, though. Not to. all of them. Not no, them. but they're, they're, I, I, to be they're honest, problematic. You have to name the charity. Fair enough. That's the thing. That's a fair enough uh, criticism. Having said that, for the sake of this argument, let's say that they had they chosen were good charities that even you, Johnny, would be like, yes, that is yeah. a good one. And there are good charities who, um, that, that, that that do help and aren't um, partisan. And um, I would say that that's an example of a great approach. To performing, and then they put this statement out, and it said, "I forget exactly what it says, but it says something on the long, on the lines that we thought music could be a source for healing, but we've decided after this five days of thinking, no, actually, it can't be." I mean, what an absurd thing to say! And I said this in the article. I fucking hate it when bands bang on about music being about healing and all this hippy dippy bullshit. But the idea that music can't heal is just insanity, mm. and. Um, I was I was sad because I thought they could be a great example of of what to do. The implication as well for their Israeli bassist, I uh, forget his name, Max Alachik, uh-huh, is that now? So what? He can't work in Israel anymore. Yeah. What is that? What? He's in a ter- tight situation. Yeah. What on earth is going on behind there? I mean, we don't know yeah. what's going on behind the scenes, but he must be in a very very difficult situation. Maybe not. Maybe he's fully supported. Maybe he's leading it. We don't know. Um, but I, I certainly was uh, very sad, and uh, that they that they should make that decision. And and there are and, and BDS are the bullies. BDS. I, I experienced this when um, a friend of mine, Baba Mal, Senegalese singer, Muslim, wonderful man, mid sixties, is the Bruce Springsteen of of Senegal. You go there, everyone knows who he is. If you get in a cab with a Senegalese, wherever you are, if you meet a Senegalese, you're working with Senegalese, wherever you are, and I've done this. All over the world, it's the first thing I say, oh, Baba Mal, do you like him? They love him. They go crazy for him. And, um, and we've made a record. We made a record with him in South Africa. When I was in Mumford, we made a record with him in South Africa. Uh, we've done several uh, tours with him. He's a great friend. Uh, he even sang at my wedding, actually. And um, where well, he played, he That's did a so show nice. in Jerusalem. And then when he announced that show, BDS somehow got my phone number. It's one specific activist got my phone number. And said, "You've got to put me in touch. You've got to get Baba not to play Israel." You, you know, he didn't know what my sympathies were. I think he assumed that I would be uh, anti-Israel. Uh, you've got to put me in touch with Baba, and they just hound you like like uh, wasps, and that's and that's their tactic. And they bully you, they terrify you into not playing. And we see yes. this countless times. Yes. And you just it, there's a long, long list of bands who announce a show in Israel. BDS launch a, a publicity uh, assault. Assault, and before you know it, it's cancelled. Now there are also very brave artists who don't put up that bullshit. Nick Cave, I mentioned him earlier, yeah. is another great example. 
who he he actually put out a great statement where he said BDS made me want to play Israel even more because I don't like being bullied. Yeah. Uh, so I'll do whatever the yeah. bully doesn't want me to do. Yeah. And and there are several artists who uh, have the courage. And and, and um, anyway, it's it's a it's a it's certainly when you work in the music industry that that whole topic is very frustrating if you have. Uh, any concept of the complexities of, of the yes. matter. A lot of people don't understand what they are refusing to do. Well, also, you know, the, the people who say they really understand the Israel-Palestine conflict, I think that they don't understand the other To understand it is to, not, is to appreciate you don't understand it because yes, it's yes. so complex yes. and it's, it's, a, it's got to be one of the most complex yes. uh, issues in, in, in the world of... of um, you know international politics, and and so anyone who thinks they they know what's going down, perhaps even myself at times, <laughs> I don't. It is it is complicated, and on this journey of podcasting, I have come to appreciate and understand it more and more, led by very brave people in politics and in society. And so you are one of them, I must say. And thank you very much for your. Support for that op-ed. Well, you know what, and, cu- and coming out like that—you you don't have to. Well, you know what's, you did. what's um, been quite. What was quite. This has happened. Several things I've spoken out about, but when I put out that op-ed in the Chronicle, several people in the music industry reached out to me saying, "Thank you. I can't say this," and they were Jewish, or they were they were they, they had family in Israel or something, and they were grateful because they can't say it. and and there's. A serious climate of self-censorship over several of these issues. Yes. A lot of people sent self-censoring over Israel-Palestine. A lot of people censoring over trans, as I mentioned. A lot of people sent censoring over Antifa and BLM. And because there are consequences for having the wrong opinions. And let's say in the music industry, almost everyone is at the mercy of, of their clients. If you're in the business side, your client is the artist. The artist... Or, and also your your potential future clients, which means that you're always almost at the mercy of the next 18-year-old girl with a great voice because that's where the money is and you're always trying to hire the, uh, or you know work with those people. So the, the, the artists aged between 18 to 25 have a lot of power, really, because that's where the money is a lot, a lot of the time. And, um, and so that generation and the politics of that generation, whatever they might be, at the moment it's very very progressive um uh they they uh, they dominate the group thing and that's to the point even people say yeah, i agree with you or like i don't even people who are like i'm fed up of this they'll say well, I, I avoid the word woke word woke because it's majority at this time at this point but even people who disagree with woke stuff they'll they'll quietly go yeah i disagree with it all but i'm not i'm not yeah. i'm gonna keep my mouth shut because i want to work which by the way you know they've got careers to maintain they've got families They've got career, um, uh, mortgages. They've got a lot at stake, and those are honourable things to pursue and to and to uh, um, you know maintain. It's why give that up for having the wrong opinion. But anyway, that's another. Yes, that's a whole other topic. That is, that is a big discussion. And you've just done a fantastic conversation with Candy Owens, who recently defended Kanye West's "White Lives Matter." t-shirt she says yay is a massive influence on her decision to be a public figure but the problem i think for candy owens is that posting your colors so closely to other public figures 
is that they can let you down. And you, you had a real to and fro with her about anti-Semitism. Yeah, so, uh, Candace was um, a very, very impressive woman. S- super bright, super sharp, exceptionally good broadcaster, knows how to be compelling and knows, and knows an, her material. She knows how to have an argument and great debater. So I, I had her on and she was very gracious to give me her time. It was just earlier in, in October, she'd been photographed with uh, Kanye at Paris Fashion Week wearing White Lives Matter uh, shirt. And um, I think that that... Now, the White Lives Matter thing does, doesn't offend me, but it particularly... Uh, it's, I, I wouldn't put on a White Lives Matter shirt. Um, it's not really... But that's a whole other conversation. Um, but in America, I think the White Lives Matter is a very offensive term it's even considered a hate speech mm. by some uh, organizations which i think speaks more about the organization than the term uh, certainly from the outside um and it caused a online outrage that the t-shirt and, and she talked about um the the uh, meaning behind it I, I to be honest i didn't find that white lives matter thing particularly controversial uh, i well, it, it was controversial not to me i i was you know it's kanye doing his thing but after that, um, and since then, Kanye has been on these anti-Semitic uh, tirades. tirades online, on social media, and uh, including saying things like he, he was going to go DEFCON 3 on all Jewish people. And uh, one rather bizarre conversation with Lex Friedman, I think he said he somehow blamed the high rate of black abortions on Jewish record labels or something like that. Yes. So it's not totally coherent, which I think is an important thing to remember with him. It isn't totally coherent. Um, but it incites, and I mean, it, it incited Winston, it incited um, Sieg Heils on yeah, bridges yeah, in LA. Kanye is right. Kanye is right, yeah. So, yeah, I, no, so I, I did end up in a, a back and forth with, Candice for about 20 minutes on on uh, on this particular topic of anti-semitism and um she's friends of him so I can understand why she doesn't want to like you know uh damage damage him any more than he's he's doing and, and I sort of get that I, you know whatever my whoever my friend is I'd I'd want you know I'd kind of got their back but um nevertheless it, it doesn't seem to me, uh, if, you know, if they are friends, she, he would, they would still be friends even if she criticised certain things yeah. of what she said. So, uh, what he said. So, um, anyway, I, I, I've certainly been very shocked by what uh, Kanye said, and, or Ye, as he's now known. And, and there's been a lot of that in the music industry. We talked about Wiley and his anti-Semitic rants and, and uh, running around London, uh, threatening to attack. He actually called out individuals, um, who, who, some of whom I know, and, and it was very scary for them. And, uh, and at the time, BLM, Ice Cube was tweeting out the mural, the, the famous anti-Semitic mural, as well as Louis Farrakhan's stuff. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism tied into that movement at the time. Um, and I don't know if that's quite where um, Kanye's coming from, but yeah, it's it's the anti-Semitic stuff has been awful, and he's and he's 
paid the price for it. He's, you know, he's lost a one and a half billion dollars fortune in about a week um, for it. And um, he's been removed off, well, suspended from various social media for his things. Now, does it incite, well, yes, that incite, uh, this is my thing on, on, this is where we're getting into a free speech conversation. He didn't incite violence. Or did he? I'm going DEFCON 3. That is probably well, inciting violence. I mean, it, it, it actually did happen. But no, the, but the, there wasn't violence. Thank God, not yet. Not it's, yet. You know. Not yet. No, I mean, I mean I, if Jewish schools are protected by muscle, I go past a security guard every day. He would give his life. Mm. This guy, non-Jewish man, a giant, a great man. He thanked me for wearing a poppy the other day. Mm. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, he must think in his mind, I hope that the sacrifice that I would give would be given by British Jews who go to this uh, school. And I'm telling him here on tape that, of course, it would. Mm -hmm. We're very proud to be British Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Well, sane ones. (laughs) Uh, No, I I, I know that. I know that. And um, I'm I'm no way am I excusing Kanye's behaviour. But I guess there's a... Um, in fact, I was absolutely shocked by it. Uh, I guess that work, the kind of thing I'm working out in my head is where is the line of inciting violence and free speech? Because free speech is a, a serious thing that's under threat at the moment. And I haven't worked out quite where my lines are. Um, now, I don't think that Kanye should be locked up or face criminal charges for what he said. Um, but... Uh, I don't, I, I, the, you know, freedom of association as, as well. I, I think it's completely understandable. And this is so he's technically been cancelled for his opinions, but I think that it's fair enough to cancel him for those opinions. Winston Marshall, uh, you give me such generous time. Oh, thank you very much for joining Johnny, us thank here. Thank you on for Johnny. having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm sorry you had all that trouble with the Aston Villa um, fans, and, and I hope that, that more people learn about that story. And, um, and that it, it, that it doesn't happen again. But uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure speaking with you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Winston. That was lovely. Very really lovely. Yeah, thank you. The best guests and their most heartfelt views. A relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along, and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli worlds that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this. Donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. That's donorbox.org slash JG Podcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education.
Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy. 